Hello, I'm Kimberly Davis, and I am the Fiscal Feminist. Hi, everyone. I'm Kimberly Davis, and I'm the Fiscal Feminist. I'm also a partner and managing director in the Bonson Group, which is a wealth management group in Newport Beach, California, with offices also in New York City. So today is going to be an awesome podcast that I'm super excited about. And I'm very excited because I have two guests with me today, Talia Naveau-Hakoen and Jamie Saul Hong. Talia and Jamie. Jamie and I are going to be doing a mini-series um, on a variety of real estate issues over the upcoming months, and they're going to cover a plethora of real estate issues, so stay tuned for that. We're super excited about it, and I want to thank Jamie for coming up with this idea, because we had once done a radio show together. We're also great friends, and I think all of these topics are something that we are all interested in. They fit into our personal finance equation, and knowing the facts is super important. Jamie is Vice President, Sales at Fidelity National Title, National Commercial Services. So our first guest is Talia. So we are super excited to have her today because she has had an extremely distinguished career. It is such a rich tapestry that I'm really excited about talking to her today because You know, we have talked a lot about career pivots and so on and so forth, and how making those moves are often very difficult, and how do you go about doing them? And honestly, you're going to love hearing her story. Currently, she is the chief investment officer at the Sabra Healthcare REIT. For those of you that don't know what a REIT is, it is a real estate investment trust, and we will be speaking to her about her position there and what she's doing in the senior healthcare market later on in the podcast. But I would like to delve into her journey. She has been an architect, an investment banker at Goldman Sachs, and an, and an operator in the real estate market. So um, there's a lot to get into. So welcome, Talia. Thank you for coming today. Thank you. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us. So uh, I want everyone to hear about your really rich journey, which is awesome. I was reading what you wrote when you sent it to me. And I was like, oh, come on. <laughs> no, there's no way this lady did all of that stuff. So I'm just going to kind of turn that over to you to give us a little storytelling experience of all the amazing things that you've done and the geographical locations that you've been and why you've made those decisions. And, and I'll probably interject here and there with a oh, comment or a question. Please do. I, uh, I'm one of those people that have not had a simple linear path in their career. As Kimberly alluded to, I, uh, I t- have some definite twists and turns. And I have lots of friends I went to college with who, on the first day of freshman year when I met them, knew exactly what it they wanted to be. And sure enough, 40 years later, they're exactly doing that at the peak of their career, and they're extremely successful at it, um, and it's wonderful. And I, I sort of scratch my head when I think about my career and the things I've done and kind of the place, the places I've been, the things I've done that were all impossible to anticipate. And if you had told me 40 years ago that this is where I would be, none of it would have been remotely believable to me. So I graduated college with a with an undergraduate degree in architecture, and I uh, I went to graduate school in architecture in New York, which is really exciting because I was like uh, I grew up on the East Coast, but I'd never spent time in New York City, so I was all psyched to be uh, a, a New Yorker. So why did you pick architecture as your first 
kind of thing that you wanted to do? What led you to that? It's a couple of things. So it's a little bit of peer convergence, if you will. A lot of my friends were, were, interest, were interested in architecture mm-hmm. in school, and I thought it was really interesting. And I had always been good at math and science, and I had always been interested in art and art history yeah. and, and, and sort of that side of the brain. And architecture brought that together, and it was a very intellectual pursuit as an undergraduate, as opposed to practical. There was nothing about st- – we didn't take structure courses, and we didn't pretend to know how to build anything. Um, we drew pictures, and, and we talked – we had a very kind of intellectual dialectic around what we were designing. Um, so it was really fun, and it was really stimulating, and it was really interesting, and introduced me to all kinds of, um, of, of ways of thinking mm-hmm. about the built environment. And when I went to architecture school, it was kind of, sort of more of the same um, – and I stayed in New York, and I practiced architecture, and um, I, I reached a turning point about seven years into my career, which was also about the same time that a major real estate recession started. A couple things were going on for me. I had actually gotten ill with something that, that I needed to take time off from work, and then I, I was frankly, I was kind of bored at work, and I, and I felt kind of done. I, here I was at around the age of 30, feeling like... This is this is it. This is I'm going to do this for the next 30 years or 40 years. This is this is not so great. And I talked with people I knew. I was doing a lot of work for major commercial landlords in New York at the time, mm-hmm. and I knew some of the business people. And I started talking to them, and they said you should go to business school. So I ended up going to business school. And I went to business school right as all the major layoffs in architecture started to happen. So so it was it was sort of really fortuitous timing for me. And even more fortuitous was that I got to go to Columbia, which was local for me because I was living in New York. And I could start in January and finish the program, the regular MBA program in 16 months. So it was like sped through. Awesome. And I had the good fortune of being recruited by Goldman Sachs there. Uh, I had never actually known anyone who was an investment banker in my entire life. That's probably a good thing, which is why you <laughs> went to Goldman Sachs and interviewed, because they do work really hard. Yeah. <laughs> but, and I just want to highlight one thing before you go on, because I think it's really important for our listeners to listen to what you just said. You were bored with being an architect. You were working in the kind of landlord commercial space. And you did, I don't know what year it was, but you did some networking or some talking to people that you knew, and you put yourself out there and Mm -hmm. asked questions. Mm -hmm. So if anyone's contemplating doing a bit of a pivot, go within the world of your professional Mm -hmm. contacts and speak to them, because sometimes you might get an idea that you didn't have yourself. And I think your story really demonstrates that. So, you know, it's interesting. I had seen some other architects who were quite senior make that pivot when the markets were still really strong. By the time I was interested in making that pivot, the market was shaky. And so I couldn't just make the pivot. And that's what I started to learn as I spoke with a lot of people in the industry. And the idea of getting my ticket stamped, if you will, at business school Mm -hmm. was credentials. And also, as it turns out, a a really positive way to ride out the next period of recession. So I, I was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal um, around that time. A, among, a group of students were interviewed and um, why they had gone back to school. And and to me, it was like, look, I'm entering, I'm, I'm entering and in, in, uh, business school, and 16 months later, I emerge and I'm worth like three times as much, mm-hmm. okay, in terms mm-hmm. of salary. 
that's like a really good trade. Yes, absolutely. Good investment. Very good. Mm-hmm. And um, and and business school came easy to me. The financial burden of business school came hard, but I sort of knew I just had to dig down and and do it. The other piece, and this is the real soul-searching piece for people who are looking at pivoting, um, if they're really making a substantial career change like I did, you will find that there is going to be a struggle with your ego. I was... um, I was pretty senior as an architect. I was a licensed professional. I was, you know, the senior person in a firm. When I joined Goldman, I was, you know, at the bottom. You were an associate (laughs) and you were, yeah. And I had no idea what everyone was talking about. (laughs) I remember sitting in that first Monday morning team meeting and listening to people and I could understand they were speaking English. (laughs) And I actually had no idea what the string of words they put together meant. And I thought, how, like, how is this going to happen? They're a tough crowd, for sure. And back in the day, because I was a lawyer in New York, and we always represented the underwriters. So I worked a lot with, you know, people in that environment. And definitely a completely different world and yes. very energetic and a lot of acronyms. You you have to just swallow your pride somewhat and just accept the fact that you're starting all over. And, yeah, you might be a little older or you might be a little different from others because you but you bring anything that you've experienced in your life, you bring with you. And that's, and that's what kind of got me through. So even though I didn't know how, how to do, you know, run an IPO um, my <laughs> right. first day, I, I knew a lot about how to communicate with customers and clients because I had spent 10 years doing that as an architect. Um, I, 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 could, I was in the real estate group. I could look at a, a plan and, and know what was going on, right? And, and I still can do that. Um, so you bring something with you that others don't necessarily have, but you still have to learn a lot. And it's humbling. And at times, it's really frustrating. But you just have to give yourself the latitude to just ground yourself and say, I got to I got to do a couple things. One is I give myself slack. And two, I have to ask questions. And the thing mm-hmm. that... Very t- sound advice. Mm-hmm. Give yourself slack while you're figuring out the lay of the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the, 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 the thing that was interesting about questions was um, it's sort of another thing I've learned is people are reluctant to ask questions. This is universal. Yeah. Um, because nobody w- wants to ask the dumb question and everyone find out they don't understand. What I realized at some point is that if I don't understand something, there are other people that don't understand 100%. it too. I'd rather ask the question and I don't. I just say, I don't care if people think I'm stupid to ask questions. Chances are they're actually not. It's just I think that they're going to think that. So when um, I was at Goldman and I was trying to learn as much as I could and I, was, I, I finally at one point found someone who was actually very senior and I started asking him questions and he started answering me questions and answering my questions and I realized that that sort of ongoing feedback loop was incredibly important because the more I asked the more I learned the more I got ahead the more I figured things out and it was an unbelievable help to me because I was you know on the one hand catching up but I was also I, I wanted to figure it out and, um, and was he also like a mentor to you? Not, not really. He was just a resource. He was a resource. Mm-hmm. He was mm-hmm. the senior person in our group. And I, I, think, I think he was a little older than some of the other people in the group. And I was older than most of the first-year associates and second-year associates and such. 
Um, but I, I did have some mentors in the group and eventually, and that was really helpful as well. So, so I tell my, my junior staff members when they come on board and my company now, I always tell them, never hesitate to ask a question. If you need to write down a list of questions and come back and, you know, ask someone quietly, mm-hmm. whatever you want to do, whatever you're comfortable with, ask questions. We'll get off a conference call and I'll and 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 most people do this. And and I'll have someone say, um, I have some questions and I'll actually ask my teammates also to answer questions because for me I look around and I say how well does does so and so understand something right. so that they can explain it because mm-hmm. because frankly we learn by doing at work and so understanding what you're doing understanding whatever the regime is whether it's a tax code or a structural mm-hmm. issue you know whatever it might be if you understand it you can explain it you should be able to explain it in a way that someone else can understand it that I, is so important and I just want to also flag here, because I've written before, based on some Harvard Business School studies, that women, and very successful women, they have a high preponderance of never speaking up in meetings or asking questions, even women who are in the upper echelons at various corporations, law firms. And so asking a question and being inquisitive doesn't mean you're stupid. It doesn't mean, you know, we, I think women try to be perfect a lot of the time, and they don't want anyone to think that they don't know the answer. And I think your, your, you know, your recitation of your question asking and how that really reaped fruit for you, you know, benefits for you is was really powerful. So anyone listening to this will see how incredibly successful Talia has been throughout her career, but it's been being brave conquering fear of change, and being able to put herself out there and ask questions. So I'm really happy that you brought that up, because I think a lot of women who, and many women listen to this, um, you know, they're just reticent to ask the question. Mm -hmm. And you just totally dispelled that. Don't don't, be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to ask for help. And I do this all the time. Mm -hmm. I still, I'll read an article, and I will... I, I will flip the piece to our CEO and or somebody else I know who's very knowledgeable on, on 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 a subject, and I'll say, I don't understand this. I just don't get it. Can you explain this to me? Right. And I, I learned. I learn a lot. You, you just can't be afraid. You have to. You have to use the resources at hand. You have to keep learning in order to keep moving forward. Um, it only, again, adds to the experience you have, which makes you smarter as you move forward and as you problem solve and, and address other issues, whatever they may be in your life and professional world or personal world. Yeah. So okay. So we're at Goldman Sachs, and you're you're in the you're in the heat of it. You know, there's a I don't know what year it is, but there's a lot of investment bankers, and yeah. there's a lot of activity, and there's a lot of pressure, and there's a lot of money to be made. So yeah. what happens? Um, it, I, I had a great time at Goldman. Look, it, for me, it was almost like I, I describe it as being in the cocoon. It's it's like going back to college, where everybody around you is smart and driven and motivated, and they all had really bad haircuts, <laughs> and um, and um, and they all kind of dressed the same. But they were really smart people, and I, it was boot camp. It was all those things, and I learned a tremendous amount. And um, I spent about almost 10 years at Goldman. I loved it. 
which is a record amount of time, I got to say, that you stayed at Goldman because a lot of people flame out, you know, and you you hung in there. And I, I did. And I also had opportunity to do some other things at Goldman, which which actually in the last so about seven years in, in investment banking and then three years, I did some stuff um, at the behest of the CFO and the CAO at Goldman. And um and those are really interesting, too. I mean, I, I can't say that they were satisfying roles um, in terms of being exciting and all this other stuff. But And they were certainly not glamorous. But I got to see the in, like the, the inside yeah, the of the firm. Yeah. And that was just eye-opening for me. And it was fascinating to see. But, I, but after uh, just about 10 years, I was just kind of ready to do something Move different. On. And I was just ready for change. I had planned on being at Goldman for four years, and mm-hmm. it was just about 10. So um, I called up several people I knew. And I said, look, I'm, I think it's just time for me to do something else. I just want to try something else. And I had always thought that I would go into the industry, which is going to go work at a REIT, because I really enjoyed, I realized things about myself, because um, I really took stock of what it is I like to do. And I realized I didn't like being a jack of all trades and having very little depth in many, many subjects. I really wanted to be more of an expert in a subject. And so I thought it would be fun to be at a REIT where I can focus. And I um, very quickly landed a role in a healthcare REIT here in Southern California. So uh, ironically, I had never covered any company doing any form of healthcare at all, real estate or otherwise, in 10 years of, of, of being a banker. So I knew nothing about the healthcare space. Two, I had been to Southern California many times, but I uh, also did at that point. Yes, I did have a driver's license. Mm, <laughs> That's right. Okay. You were living in New York for a long time. Mm-hmm. I've been in New York no for need. over twenty years. <laughs> I, I, I no need <laughs> for a driver's license. I had a I had a license. Mm-hmm. The fact that I like driven probably fifteen miles in my life was another <laughs> kind of conversation. So um, it was. Uh, so I, I kind of thought, well. Oh, and I didn't know. I knew one person in Southern California, and I thought, "This is like time. Maybe it's just a good time to put my life in the Cuisinart and see what happens." And oh, by the way, <laughs> Tanya sent me this email, you know, explaining who she was and everything. And then I thought, "I'm so stealing that line. <laughs> Throw my life in the Cuisinart. I love that. I've never heard that. So y'all are free to steal that line because it's awesome. You should like trademark it or something." <laughs> And and I did, you know, I broke up with a boyfriend. I, you know, I did all that stuff. And I and I moved out to Southern California and started working in a healthcare REIT. And I remember after the first Monday morning team meeting, coming out and asking some, pulling someone aside and asking what a SNF was, which turned out to be an acronym S N F, which stood for Skilled Nursing Facility. And here I am at a healthcare REIT. I don't even know what the heck this is, right? So you figure it out. But asking questions really matters, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so I had a lot of fun at that company. I stayed there for a few years. And then I um, I decided uh, sort of some of the things were changing at the organization. And I decided, you know, it was, it was a good time to exit while I'm still happy. And um, I took some time off, quite frankly. I ended up getting recruited by all kinds of companies. This is uh, sort of 2006, 2007 timeframe. And, and we all know what happens in the world Shortly, Shortly thereafter, thereafter. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm being recruited by banks and you know whatever. And I almost take a job in New York, and I'm wondering should I go to, back to New York? Should I stay? And and I, as I'm going through these machinations and really struggling to figure out what I want to do, I sat myself down and had a big talk with myself, and I uh, and I thought, what is it I want? 
because I was flying all these different places, yeah. you know, for all these roles mm-hmm. and, and meeting with boards and and it sounds know, really glamorous. There's mm-hmm. nothing glamorous mm-hmm. about it. But mm-hmm. you you know, it's so true. At some point in your life, and maybe it just takes a little bit of maturity. You have to look inside and say, yeah. what gets me up every day? What am I going to mm-hmm. feel happy with? Because this is kind of a long-term commitment. And I had, since I had made the move from New York to Southern California, I had, and which my mother termed as um, my moving as far away as I possibly could without <laughs> crossing an ocean. Um, <laughs> Typical mother comment. <laughs> I really struggled to figure out what it is I wanted. And I finally realized, like, the only thing I really, like, really, really wanted in my life was a dog. <laughs> we love dogs in this podcast. We are dog people. And I said, okay, well, that's what I want. And and so I started looking for a dog to adopt, to rescue, and I ended up rescuing a dog. But what it did was the sort of mission to find a dog to sort of create my little family started forcing a series of decisions. So it started forcing a decision about where I was going to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and I decided since my apartment in New York, I had a co-op um, they still owned, mm-hmm. and they didn't take pets. Guess I'm selling that, and guess I'm staying in Southern California because this would be a far nicer place to have a dog. And it just started everything happening, like, and, and literally, got the dog. I bought a house in Southern California in Newport Beach. Um, four months later, I met the man who became my husband. My dog and I adopted him. And, and <laughs> you got permission from the dog. You had to talk with the dog and said, thumbs up or thumbs down. Um, it all sort of just happened. It like it, It's as if you go through a door. For me, it was I went through a door and made a decision that was really important to me. And everything unfolded in a way I could never have imagined. As this was all happening, I was doing some consulting work here and there. Eventually, I, I actually... Um, did get recruited by a private equity firm in New York, and my husband and I decided that well, this could be this could be an interesting couple of years. We go live in Connecticut, and yeah. um, you, you know, you could commute. The dog has a place to run around, mm-hmm. and, or or we we all move there and we rent out the house here, or, you know, whatever it might be. And and so I ended up going to work there. I I ended up um, <laughs> very brief role for me, but. As much as that might be, and you'd think that that's a negative, or I would think that's a negative on my resume, I also thought I never worked in private equity, and I was working in private equity in an investor relations role, which was not the role, right role for me. I seem to have been the only person who realized that. Like, but but you know, I gave it a, a mm-hmm. whirl. I tried mm-hmm. it because mm-hmm. I thought it was you know try something. Yeah, um, and I did it starting in mid two thousand eight. E. Yeah, so I was mm-hmm. there the day that Madoff got. Uh, uh, just, oh, yeah. All this that's a whole in, other podcast. And you're investor relations. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. you're talking to the people. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was a real estate fund, so I was. But it had investments. There were investments that were commingled with other things. It was just. It was basically a circus in so many ways, but the world was a circus, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And you just didn't know. And we were in the middle of fundraising at the time. Jesus. You, if there was ever a crucible. To be in private equity, I spent six months. I learned so much. Mm-hmm. I got such a flavor of what it, what it's like and what it's like for investors, what it's like internally at a firm, um, how they make decisions, how they don't make decisions, how they think about mark-to-market, what's the psychology around this, how do you manage through a process – Anyhow, for me, it was an incredible learning experience. It was exhausting. I was commuting every week for six months. But 
I made the decision early on that it wasn't the right place for me. So, but I they asked me to stay on, so I stayed on for for six months. And um, um, when I finally left, um, I uh, I came home, and six weeks later, I got a phone call from the Department of whatever fam- you know family services or something in Massachusetts that there was an issue in my in my mom's house I had a I had an older sister who was disabled who lived at home so I had had a six-week break and now I had to be fully engaged with dealing with figuring out the situation for my mother who was elderly and who was suffering from dementia which she had been hiding quite successfully quite well, which they can do for a while and enabled sure. by people who were enab- who were helping with my sister who lived at home mm-hmm. and it had gotten to be essentially an unsafe environment for a variety of reasons so suddenly i was thrown into that i know that many of your listeners who are of a certain age are starting to grapple or thinking about when they're going to have to grapple with dealing with older parents, whether mm-hmm. their own or their in-laws or other relatives. And, and that is me. I mean, I, I wrote an article called The Sandwich Generation because mm-hmm. the responsibilities, My I'm an only child. My parents live in Pennsylvania. I live here in uh, California. And, you know, we have some similar problems with my mother. And my father is still alive, thank God. And, you know, but it is really a challenge. Mm -hmm. And it is a complicated challenge because there's no guidebook or rule book Mm -hmm. about this. And you don't want to do anything to have their life not be as dignified and as fulfilling Mm -hmm. as possible. So Mm -hmm. what you are about to tell us is very Mm -hmm. near and dear. Our parents are living longer than, you know, Mm -hmm. my parents' parents did. So this is like a kind of a new issue. and, um, and care typically falls on the daughter. Yes. And so when you look at care, mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. Like 75% of care, not only for children, but for el- the elderly parents, is on the woman in, you know, the daughter or the woman in the relationship mm-hmm. uh, in a marriage or a partnership. So it's a big deal. I mean, I have on my calendar today, this sounds crazy, but like after this, I have a phone call with a prospective client. And after that, I have, uh, don't forget to call about ordering dinner for my parents who live in Pennsylvania so that they remember mm-hmm. uh, to get the dinner, you know, and this is like I have to have these recurring tasks right. on my calendar, yeah. which is no big deal. But, I mean, it's just something you have to get your head around. It's a job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a, a full-time full, job. It's a full-time job. job, and when you're far away, mm-hmm. the scariest thing is what you don't know what's happening. Mm-hmm. And so, I have a nurse that goes there twice a day, but my mom can be very difficult, and sometimes, you know, like, apparently, you know, the nurse went there last night to do the dinner. My mom was like, I'm not doing this. I want to go out to dinner. And, you know, she was like accusing the nurse of all kinds of crazy things, which I won't even go into because they are just a little bit out there. Far-fetched. But <laughs> it's very interesting. So um, we want to hear more because now you're you're caring for your mother. And this actually kind of takes you into a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. So I have this distinct advantage of having professional experience in the realm of senior housing and looking at senior properties, et cetera. Um, But I have never been a consumer, Mm -hmm. which is very Very different. different. And as a consumer, I had the good fortune of having people I could call and say, who are the the best Mm -hmm. operators in Boston? Where should I look for my mom? This is once I got her to agree. And I had spent years trying to get her to downsize. That didn't happen right. um, until the day she called me and said, I can't live alone anymore. Hmm. I, you need to come here. 
and I and that was on a I think it was a Monday and on Friday I moved her into assisted living. Mm-hmm. Wow! Um, but I did it long distance because I, it needed it just needed to happen and it needed to happen very quickly. The good news is that the senior housing industry is a very consumer friendly industry because, frankly, they are oriented to the consumer that and and they're oriented to the adult child who's helping to care for um, the senior and who. And they recognize the things that we as adult children are most concerned about, really the safety mm-hmm. of our parents and the safety when we're not there, right. when they're alone. Because yeah. when we're there, we know we can see how much they're eating. Give we can them make their sure medication, make sure drinking they're, water. Not, you know, they're drinking Staying water. Hydrated. Right. We're afraid from when we're not there. Mm-hmm. We're afraid from when they fall my my mother very cleverly when she fell and broke her hip she was still in reason, reasonably good shape mentally she waited until the neighbor next door who was a oncologist came home and then she called him <laughs> well there's some logic there i like you know it's like okay well what was good thing you had that lifeline on you that you could press and call for help right like, right exactly uh-huh. um but let me ask you a question because yeah. you were talking about what the industry is like now and consumer oriented obviously but could you talk a little bit about the way it used to be and how people mm-hmm. so like my mom always said to me you know i don't want to go home. to a home right. i'm not going to home and she's imagining you know a very really not good situation for herself that it's going to be you know very unpleasant not very aesthetically beautiful uh you know nerds scratch it kind of walking mm-hmm, around mm-hmm. so i think maybe a li- if you could give us a little color on how that's evolved absolutely and it evolution of this segment is has been enormous and it's continuing to be enormous and i i think one of the things that we as consumers of this product and your listeners as consumers will find is that senior housing communities are now an essential component during the COVID pandemic. Mm. They're a central component of healthcare continuum. And it has been far safer for seniors to be living in senior housing communities than to be living at at home, mm-hmm. in their right. own home. Right. Um, because during all that time where we were wondering if we were going to be able to get toilet paper and whether there was going to be any food on the shelves and how we were going to get our medication, so have vulnerable seniors. And to not have to, any of that stress is an incredible relief because it is very stressful when you are feeling vulnerable to have additional stress. Mm-hmm. And that exacerbates all aspects of conditions of health that are not positive. For and mental conditions mm-hmm. as yeah. well. Because mm-hmm. if you already are in a you know dementia and you feel tension and aggravation, that will exacerbate it for Absolutely. sure. Absolutely. The industry has evolved a lot. And for, the first thing to say is that the nursing home that my grandparents went to is not something even remotely like Mm-mm. a senior housing community. Mm-mm. Senior housing communities are structured essentially as uh, pretty much like an apartment building, except that there is a, a, a common dining room. Depending on the size of the community, there could be multiple dining venues. Mm-hmm. There could be a bistro and a formal dining room. There's usually a private dining room for family functions. And there, you know, so, so there are different eateries. So it, it depends. It depends on what, where you go visit and how the scale of the, of the building and the price point. Um, there are typically activities 
anywhere between maybe three times a day to could be eight times a day. And there's typically there might be a, a, a movie at night and there might be after dinner. And there's there's usually a oftentimes you're going to find there's a bar, usually the bar. I mean, I'm ready to go move in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, usually. So when I travel to, to um, properties in various parts of the country, I always I always think it's humorous to see that there's Bible study at like four and then at five the bar <laughs> opens. <laughs> <laughs> and but, but you know I think it's wonderful actually uh-huh. I really do because it used to be that there would be popcorn and there's ice cream and I, you know why if I at sixty if I want a drink before dinner mm-hmm. or a drink with dinner am I going to suddenly stop that when I'm eighty mm-hmm. and going to want to eat ice cream right now I'm going to want what why I want you, do you know noir I want to yeah. be <laughs> right I want the choices. <laughs> that I can make for mm-hmm. myself so that I can continue to live the way I want to right. live for me, right? right? right. And I think the, the big fear of institutional living, like the, the home, mm-hmm. is that your individual choice is taken away mm-hmm. from you. And the nice thing about senior housing is that you have individual choice along everything. I mean, if you want to move into your apartment and never come out, mm-hmm. well, the housekeeper is going to come by and try to clean for you. And you can say no, I suppose. Um, and if you want, you can have them bring your meals up to your room so you don't have to go s- m- sit with anybody. And you can sit in your room and watch television and read a book if you want. So you have complete choice over that. If you want to interact with people, oh, by the way, they, there's usually a gym and things like that as well. Which I think is so important because one of the things I worry about my parents, because they still live mm-hmm. in the same house they've lived in for 60 years, is that... Yeah, they know their neighbors and, you know, but everyone's a little bit elderly or there are new people that move in and they've got young kids. They've got other things to do. But the isolation factor, Mm -hmm. you know, when you're in one of these places now where they have multiple restaurants and activities, I just think you'd. You might be happier interfacing mm-hmm. with people, but yeah, my my husband's parents went kicking and screaming into Leisure World, which in Seal Beach, uh, they were in Bakersfield living in this house that was way too big for them. Uh, they didn't have a community. Um, we helped them buy a house in Leisure World, and and they, that's a community over fifty five. Over fifty five in Seal Beach, you have your home. Um, they have found friends. They won a ballroom dancing award. Oh, wow. They play golf every day. I mean, they have a new lease on life. It's amazing. But Talia, will you talk about, because when we talk about seniors housing, it's a broad brushstroke Mm -hmm. for many different levels of care. Can you talk about kind of If you need a lot of care. And then all the way to skilled nursing. Sure. So I, I will tell you, to just pile on on what you just said, Jamie, my mother was starting to have delusions and while she was living at home. Uh, a lot of eating was an issue. She moved into assisted living, which was really a very light level of care because she didn't need real care. But she suddenly had an organized day because mm-hmm. breakfast was served at a certain time and then she could go to the fitness center. And she start- my mother started working out. You know, my That's mother, awesome. who yeah. didn't believe that women should sweat, was working out <laughs> with a trainer. And she did this through oh, end of life. So good. Um, including when she had mem- she had really progressed in, in terms of memory issues. She was eating well. They mm-hmm. were noticing whether she was eating. So I would get a call if mm-hmm. there were some eating or issues or she wasn't coming down to the dining room. If there's something was amiss, I would get a call, up, you know, if they thought she might be sick. But she blossomed. My mother was not a particularly social person, and she was definitely isolated living alone. But 
suddenly she was basically it's basically a cruise ship mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. and you can you can leave and go visit and do stuff yeah. and there's there's all always that opportunity but she made friends and she would have people to go to the movies with go hang out with i would call her in the evening and she would be she wouldn't be there and i think this is really good She's like down the hall yeah, with yeah, her friend Beverly. Awesome. I mean, that's fantastic. And it was she blossomed, and it was amazing to watch. So um, I'll co- I want to come back to what you um, asked, Jamie. So there is a continuum um, within senior housing. The lowest level of care is is what you described, mm-hmm. Jamie, which is active adult, which is marketed as fifty five plus. Realistically, that's usually really seventy five plus, um, not fifty five plus. Mm-hmm. But but. It is. And so it's people who often are typically are still driving. They don't have care issues. Um, sometimes it's one of a, one member of the couple does might have some light care issues, but but generally active. OK, mm-hmm. so it creates a community and there are various um, opportunities that are either rental or or um, buy in like that. The next level, which is kind of similar but has evolved somewhat since the um, 2008 recession, is independent living. Independent living used to be what active adult is, mm-hmm. but but independent living has evolved somewhat. Independent living allows you to be compl- – assumes you're independent. Um, so there's also state regulations around these definitions, by the way. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So independent living – you, you're you're active. Sometimes you still drive. Sometimes and have a car. Often not, but the facility itself doesn't provide medical clinical care. But there is a home, typically a home health care agency, mm-hmm. which um, with which you can contract to have whatever care. You so they want. would send nursing staff in or whatever you needed right. from the medical perspective. This is and this is the same. If you were at home, you would have had the same same, uh, same thing. But right. here you're in a, essentially an apartment building with others, um, with typically with full dining, which mm-hmm. active adult won't have because you're still cooking for yourself. But here's full dining. There's some activities or trans. There's maybe transportation to appointments, maybe coordination of appointments for you if you need that, um, and access to care. And during the pandemic, a lot of operators uh, you. Uh, provided telehealth services for right. their residents so that their residents could access health care on a safe basis mm-hmm. so they didn't have to come into contact with, with clinical care um, providers unless they needed to, right? So it was a first level of triage. The next level is assisted living. And um, assisted living, usually the, you requ- you move into assisted living if you require some help with what are called ADLs, activities of daily living. Mm-hmm. And those are things like eating, bathing, toileting, dressing. You might need help in some, all, mm-hmm. depending on level of severity. And you, you often have other clinical issues, like other health issues. You might have congestive heart failure. You might have diabetes. You need to really manage more carefully. And there is clinical staff at the building to help with that. Now, you're still living in an apartment, you, you know, whether it's a studio or a two-bedroom apartment. Or you're not in a hospital bed or anything like no. that. You still have a very nice You have your own furniture, yeah. whatever you want. You want right. to have beautiful, you know, the furniture from your house. That's what you have. Whatever mm-hmm. you furnish it as you wish. Oftentimes you can get drapes and carpet that you want, you know, whatever. It's your home. Mm-hmm. And the idea is it is your home and you have still have, again, control of your environment. You have a 
typically have some sort of pull cord or some lifeline that in case something happens, yeah. you can press a button and someone can come help you. But you have access round the clock typically to medical care if you need it. So there's a nurse. Right. There are certified nursing assistants that will come by and help with medication management to make sure you're taking your medication on time um, and as needed. So there's more support in the lifestyle mm-hmm. um, from a clinical side. And there's you know activities and there's the gym and there's you know the movie theater. And there's all those other things that are amenities, but you have a safety net. And there are also typically um, regulations about how fast you can you can drive your electric wheelchair or scooter around. Uh, just, there just, just, just there's just, always somebody mm-hmm. who's racing around. Let me tell you, it's always somebody. And there's, <laughs> by the way, there's always a mean girl table. Of course there is. Of course there is. Always like, kind of like the mean to, girls never they never that. go away. No. Um, um, and so, so that's assisted living. And the next level of care, which is a pretty high level of care, is typically called memory care. Mm-hmm. It's it's for people who are really are usually fairly advanced in in de- some form of dementia or Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's as well. Okay. Um, yes, and they don't. They haven't yet started to truly differentiate that as much as I think we will over the next 10 That's years. That's a question I'm always curious mm-hmm. about. What is the difference between really advanced dementia and Alzheimer's? And uh... they, The diseases progress differently, and it depends on what the cause is. That's probably where my clinic expertise ends, and I don't want to say things that are inc- incorrect. So memory care is, is a high level of care. Now, A lot of times you'll have senior housing communities that will have more than one level Mm -hmm. of care. Let's say you're a couple, a husband and wife, let's say, and then you move in and and you both need assisted living at the time. But one of you progresses Mm -hmm. further and really needs more memory care. So either you can both move into the memory care or you can each one be remain in assisted living and one remain in memory care. But but you're in the same building. Mm -hmm. It's just through some doors, right? Mm -hmm. There's, again, it's a way to keep some level of stability in people's lives as change occurs and the fear of change is a, mm-hmm. it becomes a, a really substantial issue oh for people God. over it's, it's huge as they decline yeah it's a sense of loss i think that people experience uh, a loss of independence a loss of free will a loss of control mm-hmm. um, and it's 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 scary whether they cover up or they show it, uh, I think that's, and, and that's it's abso- challenging. And it's absolutely reasonable. I mean, mm-hmm. we are all independent mm-hmm. adults. Everybody's been, you know, very active in their lives. I look back at my parents and how they were, and, mm-hmm. you know, it's very hard to rationalize that in yourself if you are still aware of, you know, my mom knows she has memory problems. Like, she'll say sometimes, you know, I have short-term memory problems, mm-hmm. and, you mm-hmm. know, she's aware of it. Um, so it's very hard to, I think, rationalize that as the person who's going through it. And to know. grasp that you're getting older and that yeah. you might need help. I mean, planning ahead of time, we didn't even talk about the costs and how to plan for the costs of Well, and that's so, and that's a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, Mm -hmm. obviously, you know, some people should get long term term care insurance. Um, uh, It is a little bit expensive, but I think for people who uh, cannot uh, self insure, i.e., have enough assets in retirement to be able to pay for that themselves, um, you have to have some backup, or you need to have a conversation with your children and figure out how that's going to look for everybody because it will ultimately land on their doorstep. But one of the things I wanted to 
uh, touch upon was, so we're talking about the consumer side of it, and then there's the investment side of it. Mm-hmm. So because we, we need to wrap up it uh, shortly, but I don't want us to miss out on as an investor, you are considering certain things. And then the other thing, and like I, I would like you to kind of talk about, and then the other thing is how do these REITs compare to other REITs that mm-hmm. people could invest in? I think senior housing as well as skilled nursing are both incredible investments. For one, there's there's always been a higher return on these investments because they've always been considered an alternative investment. In other words, mm-hmm. they're not the four basic what we call the four mm-hmm. basic food groups of real estate, which is office, apartment, um, retail, and um, industrial. And by the way, anyone who's invested in retail is probably mm-hmm. reg- and still there is regretting it right yeah, now. Regretting that. Um, but there is a real shift occurring because the the key industries in our country right now are moving away from what I just described, particularly mm-hmm. through COVID and the impact COVID has had. So the healthcare industry is one of the largest industries um, in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, senior housing is a piece of it, but you know, we spend more than 18% of our GDP on healthcare in total. So, so there you go. Uh, infrastructure, internet, data centers, those are the key things that are that are booming right now because they are increasingly a part of what of this economy and malls are increasingly less mm-hmm. a part of our economy because mm-hmm. we're getting everything through Amazon and 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 online shopping. And online shopping. Mm-hmm. So so there's a transformation occurring. So so as an investor, when I think about senior housing and skilled nursing specifically, I think about a few things. One is investors have typically been leery of the sectors because you have to understand the underlying businesses because this, these are – my company invests in real estate, but these are complex businesses that are taking place in these built, in this mm-hmm, real estate. Mm-hmm. So you have to have insight into the business. So anything that requires explanation usually means that you get – you get paid a little bit more for the investment. Okay, so that's one. Two, there is a fundamental demographic tailwind that's occurring for those businesses. Because by the way, I know I've been aging. And <laughs> where I'm at the end of the boomers, and the boomers are leading into their 80s mm-hmm. very soon. And people move in to senior housing and use skilled nursing facilities typically around average ages are starting around 80, 82, mm-hmm. 85. And that's exactly where we're headed. If you think of someone born in 1940, yeah, right? Mm-hmm. I got yeah. the right century. 2020, they turn 80. And I was born in 1958, and I'm still considered a baby boomer. So that's a 20-year span mm-hmm. of people going Huge right on into numbers. those places, right? Yeah. And and that sort of proportion of seniors that are going to be happening starting, call it 2025, is, is t- a good 20-year span. And then there's going to be the sort of echo boomers after that um, eventually. So – if we, I don't have the precise stat for you here, but we know that right now we don't have anywhere near enough units of senior housing in this country to accommodate all the people who, who so, might so, move So in. demand mm-hmm. is not going to be a problem. Demand is no. the easy part. Supply is the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, su- supply is not really a problem right now. It's not a problem right now, but over time it will be. But it's also because 
we started building senior housing really seriously 30 years ago, Mm -hmm. and certainly 20 years ago, there was a big boom because everyone saw it. Oh, my God, all these people are getting old and they're all moving in. Well, they're now moving in later, by the way. They used to move in at like 75. Now they're moving in more like 82, 85. Um, Because we're all living longer Mm -hmm. um, with more chronic conditions, but nothing we're dying of, okay? Um, Which also means – and that – that l- length of life is going to continue to increase as as our our sort of peers can, uh, age into that phase of their life. So there is an absolute tailwind. What's also happened is the taste and the amenities and mm-hmm. the design and the space that the silent generation might have wanted mm-hmm. are not the same as the boomers. The right. boomers were the ones who we burned our bras and we went to Woods. We want we went to Woodstock <laughs> yeah, right. and you we know. want bands. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not the Elvis impersonator that's going to show up, but mm-hmm. we're also we're going to want choice. Yeah, and so and we're going to want a different kind of space and mm-hmm. and all this. So there's been an evolution in the way senior housing uh, properties and communities are being designed, and that's ongoing because tastes have evolved. So I think there's quite a bit of senior housing uh, stock in this country, which is probably going to go away because it's somewhat obsolete as newer properties are being have been built and are continue to be right. built. There are excellent operators across the country. It is still a very it is a very local business, and and that's when I said earlier that it's very customer uh, consumer focused it is because ultimately the people at the building are selling the services that they're providing to the people in the area mm-hmm. where they live and the employees are from that area the people who move in are typically from that area unless they're you know you're you know the adult child is having mom and dad move closer mm-hmm. to where the adult children live but oftentimes we're seeing people stay in, in the same community where they have spent their life because they want to be near their friends, whether they're living at that senior housing community or they're living at their house or they're living you know, wherever. Right. Um, they want to still be in places that are familiar to them. And um, I think because I think I said this before, change is really hard. Mm-hmm. It does not get easier. Yeah. So if someone wanted to learn more about your the REIT, the, the Sabra Healthcare REIT, how do they do that? Um, we're a publicly traded company. We have a website, and there's a fair amount of information on what we do and how we do it there. As I said, we invest in skilled nursing as well, which is also no longer the concept of the nursing home that we all think about. It is uh, typically a place where people come and re- recover and rehabilitate after uh, typically a hospitalization. Um, so it's more much more focused on short stay and then discharge to home, and home could be independent living or right. it could be the house you raised your kids in or or your 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 daughter's house it could be wherever but those are the two th- areas where we focus our investments we have some additional investments including specialty hospitals and such and are these packaged in one REIT or, or it's one, one investment REIT. so you have one REIT and mm-hmm. just just briefly could you explain exactly kind of what a REIT is sure. and how people get return and cash flow because they are cash flow absolutely um, they, they give you a lot of mm-hmm. good cash flow. So a real estate investment trust is a IRS tax concept where 
a real estate company that complies with certain rules can be relieved of federal income tax to the extent that they meet certain certain thresholds. Um, one of those thresholds is the distribution of uh, a sizable portion of their taxable income in the form of a dividend to stockholders. So the summary of that is REITs typically pay a significant dividend to their stockholders. Correct. Now, their stockholders mm-hmm. receive that dividend, and it is taxable, mm-hmm. but it is only one level of taxation, not at the company and at mm-hmm. the shareholder level. So it is a good source of recurring income, higher dividend income that you might – substantially higher than you get if you owned bonds. Well, especially in mm-hmm. this environment. Oh, yeah. so, yes. Yeah. 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 And um, – and that's sort of why it's often held by investors, by older investors. And right. As, as because part of they are the needing their cash flow to live in retirement. Oh, yes. And so this is a really good REITs. Are, if they're good, solid REITs and, you you know, you can get the information about them and you get to a certain level of uh, security in your own mind about it. They are a great source of cash flow for your portfolio. They're a great diversifier. It's very hard to find a lot of diversification now. Um, you know, equities are paying more yield than uh, stocks or than bonds are. So this is a nice alternative that you can add into your allocation. Um, well, I'm. I was. We've gone a little over time, but your story is so interesting that there was. I think it's so compelling and. I wanted everyone to hear your story, not only on the investment side, but like what you've gone through, because you are just like a shining beacon of not being afraid and Mm -hmm. conquering whatever fear and anxiety you have about change and and just kind of letting life take you with some great choices and hard work to a fulfilling place. So if there's anything that you want to leave our listeners with that you could give them as advice, I hate to put you on the spot, Mm -hmm. but um, just, you know, a one-liner about, you know, because... I got to believe that during all this stuff, you were feeling some anxiety and some fear, but yet you conquered it and you channeled it the right way. And I think a lot of people, when they get fearful, they get paralyzed and then they just stop all progress. Mm-hmm. But whatever it is, you, I would like you to share because I think you are a very wise woman. Thank you. Um, I'll share with the audience one thing that I share with my friends. And, and I learned this eventually after many years of working you know, I used to look around and I'd see people get promoted or whatever, and they had somebody who was championing them. And, and I thought, like, why isn't, you know, don't, don't where's my person champion? Where's my rabbi? We used to call them rabbis. In right. Yeah. And I finally realized, no, I have to be my own rabbi. I have to champion myself because if I don't seek out opportunities, if I don't seek out relationships and contacts and, you know, network, whatever you want to call it, and if I don't make bold steps, and try things, I'm, I'm going to stay exactly where I am. So my advice is be bold, try things, don't be afraid. Even if it's trying something that you know you're going to be really bad at, like step class, <laughs> try it. Because if you're really bad at something, you have the opportunity to get better at it. Mm-hmm. And you'll never know unless you try. And you might find that you love it. Absolutely. Wiser words. This has been so awesome. You're going to see this lady again because we're doing our own mini-series. Who knows? We might throw something in other than real estate. You never know. Just to keep your interest peaked. Um, There's a lot to talk about. Oh, my God. We could even talk about completely non-financial things. Um, So I really want to thank 
you, Jamie, for thinking of all this because this is awesome. And I feel like today I have delivered the goods to my listeners with this interview with Talia. I mean, you are you're just such an interesting lady. I am just so happy that you took the time to come here today. I can't thank you enough. I am very excited to listen to this. And I hope everyone hung in there and listened to the end because this is some very interesting information. And it is possible I might ask you to come back again because (laughs) I think there's so much more that you have to offer our listenership. So thanks very much, ladies, for coming today. And on that note, I will wrap it up. We will uh, come together again in the next week or two. Thanks for listening. I'm the Fiscal Feminist. The Bonson Group is registered with Hightower Securities, LLC, member FINRA and SIPC, and with Hightower Advisors, LLC, a registered investment advisor with the SEC. Securities are offered through Hightower Securities, LLC. Advisory services are offered through Hightower Advisors, LLC. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities. No investment process is free of risk, and there is no guarantee that the investment process or the investment opportunities referenced herein will be profitable. Past performance is not indicative of current or future performance and is not a guarantee. The investment opportunities referenced herein may not be suitable for all investors. All data and information referenced herein are from sources believed to be reliable. Any opinions, news, research, analysis, prices, or other information contained in this research is provided as general market commentary. It does not constitute investment advice. The team and Hightower shall not in any way be liable for claims and make no expressed or implied representations or warranties as to the accuracy or completeness of the data and other information, or for statements or errors contained in or omissions from the obtained data and information referenced herein. The data and information are provided as of the date referenced. Such data and information are subject to change without notice. This podcast was created for informational purposes only. The opinions expressed are solely those of the team and do not represent those of Hightower Advisors, LLC, or any of its affiliates. Hightower Advisors do not provide tax or legal advice. This material was not intended or written to be used or presented to any entity as tax advice or tax information. Tax laws vary based on the client's individual circumstances and can change at any time without notice. Clients are urged to consult their tax or legal advisor before establishing a retirement plan.
Ignorance is not bliss. As women, burying our heads in the sand when it comes to our money has dire consequences. But yet, so many of us have employed this detrimental strategy. After over two decades of experience, I've discovered that women face a twofold crisis of competence and confidence regarding how they approach and handle finances. It's time to close that gap. I wrote The Fiscal Feminist, a financial wake-up call for women to teach women how to take charge of their money and control their financial destinies. This book will help you achieve financial literacy, establish the right tools and rules for managing your money and relationships, and to plan for your future. It's time to gain and maintain financial wellness on your own terms. Head to FiscalFeminist.com to order your copy today.